Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Augustine of Hippo once wrote, God chooses us not because we believe, but that we may believe. So welcome back to our our series on the letter to the Romans titled The Power of the Gospel. And in the first eight chapters of this letter, the Apostle Paul lays out the clearest and most brilliant exposition of the gospel in the entire Bible. As we've seen over the last 50 parts of this sermon series, Um, In these eight chapters, Paul masterfully has explained what the gospel is, the bad news of men's condition, and the good news of what God has done for us in spite of our condition, and the truth that we are justified before God by faith alone in Christ alone. Paul also then explains to us the blessings that the gospel gives us, that we have now peace with God. Those of us who are enemies with God are at peace with Him. And we have access to Him and His grace. We also have the love of God poured into our hearts, and we have a hope that just cannot ever be taken from us. Paul also explains how the gospel works and how Christ's life, death, and resurrection are applied to us and how we are united to Christ in a very real way by faith. He then explains how we are set free from the penalty and the the power of sin as well as bondage to the law. He also then explains how those who trust in Christ are completely secure in the hands of God. The The first chapters of Romans is a masterpiece really of theology. It displays the glorious nature of the gospel and If you have studied this and understand these first chapters, you have a really good handle on the gospel itself because these chapters contain a complete treatment of the subject. Are we okay? Okay. And it is at this point that Paul could simply have just rested his case. He could have just stopped there. The reality is he could have just ended right there. But what you need to realize is there's a little secret to most of Paul's letters. Most of Paul's letters can be neatly broken down into two sections. In fact, when you read the letters of Paul from now on, you'll remember this, right? The first section that Paul usually writes is a theological section where he explains some truth that he needs us to know, that we need to know, like the gospel in Romans, or how he addresses some theological issues like the teachings of uh, or the false teachings of the Judaizers and the Galatians. Paul has to actually straighten some theological things out. Paul usually spends the first part of his letter explaining the things that we need to know. And then after that, secondly, in the next section, he usually be, uh, uh, starts with application. This is where Paul explains what we need to do with what we know. Paul explains how we need to live our lives in light of the truth that he's explained. In Romans, Paul actually will explain, you know, not only has he explained what the gospel is, he will explain how we are to live in light of the gospel. In fact, beginning in in chapter 12, what we'll see that he will say that we need to live as 
We need to live our lives as a living sacrifice to God and that we need to live as good citizens here and now in this world and we need to live and walk in love, especially for our brothers and sisters in Christ. That is how we are to live the truth of the gospel. And so Paul always begins with theology, but then he moves on to application. That's the secret to his letters. And the truth is, Paul could have easily just stopped there at the end of Romans 8 with the theological part and then jump into Romans chapter 12, but he doesn't do that, which should cause us to ask, why? Why, does he, why, does he, why doesn't he just transition right here? Why these, these three verses in the middle? Well, it's because, as we talked about last week, there is a gigantic objection to the gospel being raised by a lot of people at that time. An objection that was so big that it threatened to undermine not only Paul's credibility, it threatened to undermine the entire gospel, the gospel that gives us hope. Right? It actually threatened the entirety of the Christian faith. This objection, if it were true, would completely unravel everything that Paul had explained so masterfully in the first chap- eight chapters. Right? And he would have rendered this entire letter meaningless. That's how big the objection is. And so Paul, after completing his exposition of the gospel, he begins to defend the gospel in chapter 9. And he spends the next three chapters putting to rest the objections uh, as well as, as give us good reason for our hope. Now, why start with that on Sunday morning here in the 21st century? Right? Why is this important for us We're not even Jewish, for crying out loud. Why is defending the gospel important to us? Well, for lots of reasons, not the least of which Paul in this text sets for us an example. You see, Paul and his word never shies away from difficult questions. Paul and the word of God never shies away from objections. Paul and the other authors of the Bible never run from the hard questions that people ask. They never, ever shy away from objections to our faith. And this is important for us as Christians right at the gate because if you follow Christ for any length of time, you will meet people in your life who will have objections to your faith. You will meet people who will have hard questions about what you actually believe. I actually experience this every single day. But what you need to understand is though that you might not know all of the answers to all of the questions, the objections in, this, in the moment, you can be confident in the fact that the Bible itself and the authors who have written the letters never run from the difficult questions. They never run from the objections. They don't hide from those who seek to refute it. In fact, when you survey the rest of this chapter, you're going to find that Paul addresses several, several big questions. In verse 6, we see the question of whether or not God's word has failed. Right? Verse 14, Paul confronts the question whether or not God himself is just or unjust. In verse 19 is the ever-popular question still being asked even now. If God is sovereign, how can he hold us responsible? And then in verse 30 is the question of how is it possible that the Gentiles who have attained righteousness, that the Jews who have the law have not been able to attain? 
Paul doesn't run from the hard questions. And that's an example for us because you will, I promise, it will happen, be confronted with objections. I don't care if you've been a Christian for five minutes or 50 years. There will always be someone who thinks that they have an objection or they have a thought that they think will unravel everything that you believe. I used to actually think that way. Objections about the nature of God, objections about the reliability of the Bible, objections about how the Bible uh, calls us to live. If you have hope in Christ, you will... There will always be people who have objections to your faith, and some of those objections will seem very serious. But the truth is you do not have to be intimidated. You do not have to run from them because those objections, every one of them have an answer. Every one of them has been put to rest. There, as it says in the Bible, nothing new under the sun. There's not a question that hasn't been answered a million times, and it's the same questions they've been asking from the very beginning. So brothers and sisters, I want you to know, I want you to hear me. For every objection, there is an answer. And that's exactly what we see here. Paul doesn't shy away from the objections to the gospel. He faces them head on. And in the process of answering these objections, Paul not only strengthens his case for the gospel itself, but he also reveals to us how God brings salvation to his people. And so turn with me again to Romans chapter 9, and we'll start looking at verse 6 and find out then, what is this big, earth-shattering objection? Paul writes, but it's not as though the Word of God has failed. You see, Paul makes a statement in response to a very important issue. The problem is that, that Paul is facing is the fact that the gospel was largely rejected by people who were Jewish. A very high percentage of people who were Jewish just simply refused to believe. In fact, in the last section, we, we find that Paul pours out his heart in anguish because many of his countrymen have rejected the gospel in Christ. He is, he is in, in emotional pain for them. He, he loves them and it hurts, it, it hurts him that they've rejected Christ. And the reason why this is concerning is because the gospel was supposed to be rooted in the Old Testament, in the Scriptures. In fact, Paul had said that it was. That he says the gospel is revealed by the law and the prophets. That's the way of referring to the Old Testament Scriptures. And so in the very, the very people whose lives were connected to and defined by the Scriptures, the very people who memorized the Scriptures from a young age, those people couldn't see in the in the, in, in the verses, in the scriptures, what it was that Paul was actually preaching. They couldn't make the connection. And these people, because of their connection to the scriptures, were looking for the one who was to come. They were looking actively for the Messiah. And they've been looking, they've been looking for him for decades, even centuries. They read and searched the scriptures, and they were actively looking for him and were hoping that he would come in their lifetime kind of like the way that we look and hope for the return of Christ in our lifetime. But the problem is Jesus came and many of those people who were looking missed him. They didn't recognize him. They didn't see him. And it's, and it's the same people, these same people were holding on to the promise that was in the Old Testament 
that the promise of an everlasting covenant that God had made with His people, His children, and these Jewish people identified themselves as God's people. They identified themselves as God's children. And because of that, they reasoned this way, that if many of the Jewish people who were physically descended from Isaac and Abraham, the very people who were given the law, the very people who had the Mosaic covenant, if they didn't believe the gospel, then either the gospel isn't true, or if the gospel is true, then the Old Testament promises, specifically the promise that God had made to his people, had failed. That was how they reasoned. That was the only two alternatives that they could see. Either the gospel itself was false and wrong, or the Old Testament promise that God had made to his people had failed because they saw themselves, because they were Jewish, as God's people. And by this reasoning, the gospel that Paul was proclaiming then, either way would be worthless. And so... It's a pretty big objection, right? It's a serious affront to the gospel that Paul had proclaimed. And if Paul didn't address it, if he just would have ran from it, then there would be serious doubt about the truth regarding Christ and his ability to save. It would actually render this entire letter that he wrote pointless. But again, Paul doesn't hesitate to answer the objection. Instead, he actually tackles it head on. He goes right at it and gives an answer that would have sent shockwaves throughout the entire Jewish world. And what he said was this, but it is not as though the word of God has failed for or because not all who were descended from Israel belong to Israel. That is the answer. A lot of people want to skip right past that, but that's the answer. Right? Again, what's the objection? The objection is if many Jews who were born into the, the, the ethnic family you know, of Israel, the nation of Israel, if they rejected the gospel and Jesus as the Messiah, if the gospel is true, then the word of God has failed all those people. But Paul says no. In no uncertain terms, he says the, the, the word of God has not failed. Right after this, he actually gives the reason why the Word of God has not failed. He said, and the reason was because not all who were descended from Israel belong to Israel. Just let that soak in for a minute. I want you to hear what Paul is saying. Not everyone descended from Israel belong to Israel. Paul is making a very clear distinction a distinction between two things that are both called Israel. It's where a lot of people get tripped up. You have Israel that doesn't belong to Israel. Right. Now, in context, his readers would have understood what he was saying. What he was saying is an Israel that people think about when they hear the word Israel, right, the nation, but then there's also an Israel that's not necessarily them. It is the true Israel, the true Israel that is who are God's people, those that are God's true children. And so this, this could, have, could be stated this way. Not every person who's descended from national Israel belongs to true Israel. That's, that's what he's saying. 
He makes a clear distinction that we cannot ignore here. There is an Israel, the nation, made up of people who are descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then there is the true Israel, God's people, God's children. And these two things are not the same thing. That's what he's saying here. There may be some overlap, but they're not the same. Not every person who's born genetically related to Israel is true Israel. And that's the answer to the objection. You see, Paul right here gets to the heart of the matter and declares, not everyone who is Jewish by birth is actually part of the group of people that God has made a promise to, true Israel. And this would have been shocking for the people to hear at the time. In fact, it's shocking to some people even today to hear that. But it's exactly what Paul says. The reason why so many Jews have rejected the gospel, why so many Jews have been cursed and cut off from Christ and are now under God's wrath like the rest of the world is because not everyone born into this national family is actually part of God's people that he made an everlasting promise to. That's what he's saying. He says the reason why they rejected Christ and are now cursed under God's wrath is because they were never part of God's true family. Because being part of God's true family isn't about ethnicity or nationality. It's about something else altogether. And just in case people didn't understand that or accept that, Paul then emphasizes the point and goes on and says, for... Again, because not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they're his offspring. And in other words, just because a person is biologically related to Abraham and just because they're physically descended from him doesn't make them his children in the sense of being children of the promise. That's what Paul is saying. And again, this was a shocking statement from Paul because every Jew believed and still today believes that they have a claim on the covenant promises of God because of their heritage, because of their nationality, because of their ethnicity. The Jews believed that they were right with God because they were physical descendants of Abraham. They believed that even though that some people in our in our midst, don't really believe in God. Even them, if they, if they were born of Abraham, they are saved. They believe their Jewishness and their circumcision saved them. But if you remember, early on, Paul has already addressed this issue. He's already destroyed the notion of that in Romans chapter 2. Paul had made it clear that being an ethnic Jew and keeping the law and being circumcised was not what made a person a real Jew, and it was not the basis of how a person gets justified with God. Paul made it clear that the Jews stood on equal ground in Romans chapter 2 before God with the Gentiles. We are all, every one of us, in the same place, equally condemned. And in this text, Paul goes even further and even says, being born Jewish doesn't necessarily qualify them to be part of Abraham's family. And as shocking as this was to hear, this is not a new idea. Paul didn't invent this idea. In fact, Jesus talked about this. In John chapter 8, beginning in verse 39, we read Jesus talking to very devout Jewish people, Pharisees, and he's, he's arguing with them. 
And they answered him and it says, and they, they say, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said, if, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the work Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You were doing the works your father did. Jesus is saying, you have a different father. And they said to him, we're not born of sexual immorality. Right? They're actually poking at Jesus being born of a virgin. Right? They've heard the story, right? and they're making fun of him, basically calling him a bastard. Right? And, and so they say, we're not born of sexual immorality. And, then, and they say, we have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, if you were of your father, right, you would have loved me. For I come from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And you do, and your will is to do your father's desires. Jesus confronts these Pharisees who were absolutely genetically related to Abraham, who were certainly part of national Israel, and they were Jews by ethnicity, by nationality and religion. And Jesus himself says that Abraham wasn't your father. You're not his true children. You may be descended from him, but you are not true Israel. That's what Paul is saying. And the reason why this is why so many Jews have rejected Christ and, and have been cut off from God, even though that they grew up with the scriptures, isn't because God's word failed. It's because those people have rejected Christ and are not part of true Israel. And the promise of God isn't for them because being Jewish isn't what makes a person right with God or even true Israel. The reason why they're cut off even though they're descended from Israel, Isaac, and Abraham, is because they're not Abraham's two true children. They were never part of God's family. And again, this would have been a scandalous, startling statement by Paul. Because what Paul is declaring the truth, that being part of the family of God has never been about nationality, genetics, works, or religiousness. And, and, and the things that the Jews, these are the things that they held on to as their pedigree. They, they pointed to those things and said, that's the reason why we're going to be saved. But none of those things qualify them for the family of God. Now, it is true that God created a nation of people who were genetically related to Abraham, a nation separated from the rest of the world, a nation that was supposed to be the pastor nation for the rest of the world to shine the light of God called the nation of Israel, but Paul says those things are irrelevant with regard to the everlasting eternal covenant made to true Israel. That's the answer to the objection. Now, here's the thing. Paul doesn't just give an answer, a scandalous, shocking answer. He doesn't just make a claim and just leave it there. He doesn't expect for people to take him at his own authority. No, he goes further and he proves his claim by building his argument, not on his opinion, not on Christian philosophy, and not appealing to the culture. He actually builds his argument on the very word of God. Because what follows is several references to the Old Testament, particularly Genesis and Malachi, that Paul uses to set an example for us as he uses the word of God to defend the gospel. Paul is an example for us 
because that's how you defend the gospel. This is important for us today because there is a tendency in our culture, there is a tendency in the church to shy away from the scriptures when it comes to giving a defense of our faith and the gospel. There are people today who almost seem embarrassed to refer to the scriptures in order to defend what they believe. Many people in our culture today, including many who call themselves Christians, have bought into the idea that you need something outside of the Bible in order to prove the Bible. There are people today who believe that the Bible is just a collection of ancient documents. In fact, there's a very famous pastor in Georgia who says just that. He says, he has said that Christians need to unhitch their theology from the Old Testament because he finds the Old Testament very embarrassing to him. Right? He's even recently had a, released a sermon series that's based on the idea that we need to stop saying the phrase, the Bible says so, because in his words, the Bible doesn't say anything. It's just a collection of ancient documents and isn't the foundation of our faith. It's one of the most popular pastors in the entire country, by the way. And he's not alone, right? There's a growing movement that rejects the inerrancy and sufficiency of the Scriptures, and they say things like, well, the Scriptures are not really God's Word. Jesus is God's Word, but, but God never calls the Scriptures His Word. And it's because of this that many, many Christians believe that they need to step outside of the Bible to prove the Bible. They need, to, they need something else to corroborate the Bible to defend the things that they believe. In fact, there are people who will try to convince others to follow Christ without ever referring to the Scriptures at all. They'll refer to philosophy, they'll refer to archaeology, and they'll refer to history and even science in order to try to prove God and, and then work their way towards the resurrection, and then hopefully they can sneak in some of those teachings from the Bible. But hear me. I believe that evidential apologetics has value. I believe that that history is valuable in the defense of your faith. I believe that philosophy is. I love philosophy. Archaeology and science also make big claims for the, as evidence for God and the resurrection. But hear me, none of those things are sufficient to bring people to a saving knowledge of God. Right? You can have all the evidence in the world and they will still doubt you. You can continue to provide evidence time and time again. None of those things will be the reason why people believe. And by the way, none of those things are the reason why the Bible is true in the first place. You see, the Bible isn't true because the archaeology proves that. You understand that? The Bible's not true because, because all the claims that it makes are, can be corroborated in archaeology. The Bible isn't true because of the historical evidence of the resurrection proves it to be true. Why is the Bible true? Because it's the very Word of God. That's why it's true. The Bible is God's revelation of himself to us. The scripture, as Paul says, is theonoustos. All scripture is breathed out by God. How do you talk? You breathe out. The Bible is God's very word to us. In fact, the um, 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith in chapter 1 says this, the Holy Scriptures are the only sufficient, certain, and infallible standard of saving knowledge, truth, and obedience. The light of nature and the works of creation and providence so clearly demonstrate the goodness, wisdom, and power of God that people are left without excuse. However, these demonstrations are not sufficient to give knowledge of God and His will 
that is necessary for salvation. In other words, history and archaeology and science absolutely reveal God's existence. That's why we say that everybody knows that God exists. They just suppress the truth and unrighteousness. It's just those things can never bring anyone to salvation. Only the Scriptures can. The Word of God is true. It is authoritative and essential for our faith because it is His Word. The confession further states in, in paragraph 4, the authority of the Scripture obligates belief in them. The authority does not depend on the testimony of any person, meaning philosopher or apologist or historian. It doesn't depend on any person or church, but on God who, who is the author alone, who is truth itself. Therefore, the Scriptures are to be received because they are the Word of God. The Scriptures are inspired, infallible, inerrant, and sufficient Word. And that is why Paul builds his defense of his gospel on the Scriptures. And so must we, brothers and sisters. When people come to you for, with objections to your faith because, you, because you know, they've got big questions, we must learn to use the Word of God to answer those objections. Not your opinion, right? When people ask me you know, about the gospel, I don't begin with my own story. You know why? Because my own story is not the gospel. It's my personal testimony. We must not depend upon our own stories or philosophies. We must be willing to learn and grow in the Scriptures and be confident in the Word of God to answer those objections, just as Paul was confident in them. And that's why Paul appeals to the Scriptures to defend the gospel and this astonishing statement that he's made that, that not all people descended from Israel are true Israel. And he begins with, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This, by the way, is a reference specifically to Genesis 21.21. What's cool, if you have a Bible, you'll probably find a little footnote, and at the very bottom you'll see that there's a cross-reference to that very scripture so you can look it up and see what Paul is actually referring to. If you didn't know that, you learned something new in church today. Praise the Lord. Right? But this is a reference specifically to the Old Testament, to Genesis chapter 21, 21, which, which his audience would have been familiar with. And he continues to say, this, is, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. For this is what he promised. And then he quotes Genesis 18, 10, which says, about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Paul quotes two passages from Genesis in order to build his argument. And both of these passages are about the promise of the child, Isaac, who was born to, to Abraham and Sarah. How many of you guys heard about Isaac when you were like a kid in like Sunday school? Right? All right. Some of you. Paul, we always talk about those, those stories. But Paul begins here because he own, because not only is he beginning it's the beginning of Israel as a nation but it's also the beginning of true Israel God's true people and it demonstrates how God himself determines who his people are and the first thing we need to see is what Paul says in verse 8 the right the fact that God chose Isaac to be the one through whom Abraham's offspring will be named means that it is not the children of the flesh which are the children of God but the children of the promise that are counted as offspring and again, this stands in contrast to how the Jews at the time saw things and even see things now. They believe their physical, familial relationship with Abraham is the basis of them being a child of God. 
But Paul says this is just not true. It has nothing to do with the flesh. It has nothing to do with with propagation. It has to do with the promise. And Paul points to Isaac as the example of this, to which some would say, well, wait a minute, but Isaac is physically descended from Abraham. That doesn't prove what you're saying here. It doesn't prove what Paul's saying. Actually, it does. You see, Abraham already had a natural biological son in the flesh, Ishmael. We've all remember that story, right? Sarah, you know, couldn't have children. And what did she do? She gave her handmaiden, Hagar, to, to Abraham because, because Sarah was barren, and Hagar then got pregnant and bore a son, Ishmael, who was Abraham's legitimate firstborn son because he had no other children at this point, which means Ishmael, being firstborn, would have, in that culture, had the rights to all of the family blessings. But he didn't receive the blessing. He was passed over. He was certainly blessed by God in other ways, but he was not made a child of the promise or a child of God. God didn't make him an heir of the covenant promise. That was given to Isaac. God chose Isaac for that. Not because of the flesh, but because of the promise. The promise was not given to any of the other sons of Abraham either. Did you know that Abraham had a total of eight sons? That's why it's important to read your Bible, all the little details. I forgot about that when I was reading this. Abraham had eight sons. We, already, we always talk about the first two, right? You know, Ishmael and Isaac. But we forgot about the other six that were born to a concubine uh, after Sarah. They, they are all Abraham's descendants, and they were all circumcised, but they're not all included in the covenant promise. Only Isaac was. Why? Because Isaac was the child of the promise. He is the one that God promised would come through his wife Sarah, who was barren. It is through, it is through him that the nations would be blessed. And by the way, it was the count of this promise. It was because of this promise that Abraham believed and because he believed, he was justified by his faith. If you remember in, in Romans chapter 4, verse 3, Paul says, For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul is the father of all those who believe because he is the one who had faith in the promise. That's the whole point. Making Abraham the father of all who have faith. By the way, that's why when you were a little kid in Sunday school, we used to sing that song, Father Abraham is man. You remember that song, right? That's the reason why. It's not because you were Jewish. It's because God, because Abraham's the father of all who have faith. Not to mention the reason why Isaac's situation is important is because Isaac was not the result of simple, natural human procreation. He was not a child of the flesh in the conventional sense. He was a supernatural act of God, a miracle. Remember, Abraham was 100 years old and Sarah was 90 years old and barren when God confirmed the promise that, that she would have a child, okay? How many of y'all have kids? All right. How many of y'all have grown-up kids? All right. How many of y'all could handle having a brand new baby in your age. Yeah, you're young, right? You're not 90. I'm 53 and I'm like, no way, right? Carson was, was born when I was already pretty old. 
And that was already pretty tough. Like, she was 90 years old. 90 years old when the promise came. So it was humanly impossible for her to have a child. It was not going to happen by natural procreation. It was not going to happen because of the flesh. Isaac was born because God intervened in a miraculous way to make good on the promise that he had made. Isaac was literally the child of the promise. And the point that Paul was making is this. Those who were children of God become his children, not by natural procreation, not by simple biology, but by his miraculous work. Those who become God's children do so because God miraculously makes them his children. And if you object to that, remember what Paul said in Romans chapter 8. What did he say? Beginning in verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are what? Sons of God. Wasn't about your biology, was it? For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out by the Father. We weren't born into it. God supernaturally brought us into it, adopted us into the family. The Spirit Himself bears witness to our spirit that we are children of God and have children and heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with Him in order that we may be glorified with Him. Right? That's what Paul's already said. Right? Those who become God's children do so because God miraculously makes them their children. And let us not forget what the Apostle John himself said. In the very first chapter of the Gospel of John, beginning in verse 10, it says, He... Jesus, the Word, was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. And He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. But all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become what? Children of God, who were born, listen how He says it, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor even the will of man, but supernaturally of God. Those who become God's children become His children because God miraculously makes them His children. Being brought into the family of God, being one of His people, being part of true Israel is not about the nation of Israel. It was never about ethnicity or biology. It has always been about God's promise, His miraculous work, and His sovereign choice. God chose Isaac because of His own will. It's that simple. And if you think I'm overstating that, then turn with me to Galatians chapter 4. In Galatians chapter 4, Paul writes, beginning in verse 22, For it was written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and the other a free woman. But the one of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the, other, while the son of the free woman was born through the promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These two women are two covenants, one from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai or in Arabia. She corresponds with present Jerusalem, the nation, physical nation of Israel. For she is in slavery with her children, but Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one, who does not bear, break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. 
for the children of the desolate one will be more of those who are who who has a husband. Now you brothers, speaking to Gentile Christians in Galatia, you brothers like Isaac are children, children of the promise. Gentiles like Isaac, a Jew, are children of the promise. The offspring of Abraham that are his, the heirs of God's promise are not those who simply are physically descended from him. They are those who brought into being by God's sovereign will and power. And so Paul, using the Old Testament scriptures, builds his defense against this objection about, about this. And Paul could have just simply stopped there. But what I love about Paul is he doesn't even believe well enough alone. It's kind of like me. When I lecture my kids, I like to hammer the point over and over again, right? Yeah, my, my kids can testify to that. Like, once I get started, it's hard to get me to stop. But Paul doesn't stop here. He continues, and he takes the opportunity to drive the point home because some people might argue, well, God, well, well Israel, Isaac was chosen because of Sarah. Right? The others were rejected because they had different mothers. Well, well, Paul then solves that issue and jumps right in and says, not only so, but then also Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Quoting Genesis 25, 23, as it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Paul moves from the story of Isaac and Ishmael to the story of Jacob and Esau. And by doing so, Paul then rules out the genetic relationship of both Jacob and Esau because they're born from the same father and the same mother. Well, this isn't about who your parents are. Not to mention, they're twins, which means neither one of them had a history by which to judge them. Ishmael, on one hand, had, was quite a bit older than his brother Isaac, and he was a teen before Isaac was even conceived. And so a case could have been made to say, well, well Isaac was, 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 was rejected because he was a jerk. He was a bad kid. But this isn't the case with Esau and Jacob. In fact, notice what the scripture says, that God chose Jacob before they were born and could do anything good or bad. You see, Paul makes it clear that it's not only does God not choose who are his family based on ethnicity or biology, he doesn't choose them based on what they do either. It's not about works. So when a person says, I should go to heaven is because I'm a good person, it's not about that. Never has been. It's not about you trying really hard to make your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, which everybody thinks that they can do. It's not about the things that you can do for God. It isn't about your religious observance either, because by the way, all eight of these children of Abraham, right, all eight of... Abraham's children in both Jacob and Esau, all of them were given the sign of, of the covenant, which is what? Circumcision. They were all circumcised. They were all part of the physical family. But only Isaac and Jacob then were part of God's family. And so their religious tradition didn't make them the children of God either. You see, for those who become the children of God and descendants of Abraham have one thing in common. It's not biology. It's not tradition. It's God's grace. That's it. 
Every person who has ever lived from then to now, who will ever come into the kingdom of God, we all have one thing in common. God's grace. That's it. God's grace. You become children of God through God's promise, His miraculous work, and His divine election. God chose them before the foundation of the world. That's what the Bible says over and over and over again. You see, God's people never have been a group of people with a common nationality or common biology or common family. What what does the word tell us? That there will be people in God's family of every what? Nation, tribe, and tongue. God's family, true Israel, will always be God's elect. People that God have saved, not because of anything within them, but by His grace. People that God has ordained to be redeemed in the covenant of redemption. You see, there's nothing in you. I want you to hear me. There's nothing in you that that you can point to to make God love you. There's nothing in these people that you can point to that makes them worthy of God's grace. You understand that? Because Jacob, when he grew up, he wasn't a good guy. Abraham was caught in multiple lies. There's nothing in these people that were chosen by God to make them worthy of God's grace. There's nothing in them intrinsically that makes them deserving of God's love. Nothing. God redeemed them simply by His grace. And I know this is a point that many people struggle with. But again, look look at Paul's words again. I know that people struggle with this idea here, but it says, he says, not only so, but also Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of what? Election might stand, not because of works, but of, because of him who calls. She, she was told, the older will serve the younger, and as is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I, what? I hated. There's a lot of debate, by the way, about this expression here. Because, because there are people that really struggle with the idea that, that God has hatred. But he's talking about holy hatred, right? This is not simply that God, you know, like was just, he hated him like we hate with our kind of viral, uh, virulent kind of hatred. What it simply means is that God chose and had favor on Jacob rather than Esau. In fact, we see a similar expression this in Luke where Jesus says, <clears throat> if anyone comes after me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And what we understand is that, the, first of all, the Word of God calls us to love people, not hate them, right? So why would Jesus say what he said? Well, he's speaking parabolically. He's, he's emphasizing the, the truth that he's trying to communicate. He isn't calling us to hate our moms and dads. What he's saying is, your love for me must be supreme above every other love there is possible. That's the contrast that's being drawn here. And it's the same idea. God, his favor towards Jacob is supreme over Esau. In fact, God blessed Esau. And so Paul is making it clear that that the choosing of Jacob over Esau didn't have anything to do with them or have to do with their parents or how they would have lived their lives when they got older God chose Jacob and not Esau to be a child of the promise by his sovereign election. God 
chose him by the counsel of his own will. And if you think I'm overstating this, remember what Paul said in Romans chapter 8. Right? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Right? God's the one who chooses. And just, as, and just before that, Paul said what? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. The promise that we hold on to, right? For those who are called according to his purpose. What purpose? His purpose of election. For those whom he foreknew, he what predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might become firstborn amongst many brothers. Again, supernaturally part of the family. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Again, I want you to hear the words of Paul in this text. In order, This is in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, because of him who calls. You see, those who belong to God's family, those who are part of God's children, who were Abraham's offspring and Isaac's offspring, are not children of the flesh, but the children of the promise, who were sovereignly elected by God himself. That's what Paul says here. God's promise has not failed because God is the one who chooses and determines who is part of his family. That's the root issue right there. God is the one who gets to choose. It's never been about biology. And some struggle against this idea, right? But it's right here in the text. And guess what? A very common objection to this truth is found in the very next section beginning in verse 14, where somebody asked the question, what shall we say then if there is injustice, is there injustice on God's part? Is God in unjust for choosing who's part of his family? And Paul says, by no means. And then he goes back to the scriptures again saying, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Now we'll talk more about that next week, but, but Paul's point is, inescapable. God's word has not failed because the promise made of an everlasting covenant is for his family and his family are made up of those that he has chosen and elected. So what does that mean for us then? Let's just kind of wrap this up. Then, okay, Sherman, you hammer that, that home. What does that mean for us? Well, what it means is some really important things for us. First, it means that being a child of God, it has to do with, with us. It's not about us. It's about him. That's the truth we come to terms with. It's not about our ethnicity. Even today now, there are people who think that it's about ethnicity. There are heretical groups that think that, that you, can't get, you can't be part of God's kingdom unless you belong to a specific ethnic group. But it's not about ethnicity. It never has been. It's not about nationality. We're not God's people because we're, we're, we're Americans. Guess what? There are people who are Christians in nations that we are at war with and possibly going to war with, right? We're, we're, we're not God's people because we have the stars and stripes. Now, believe me, I'm an American. And I love being an American and I love everything about being an American. But I'm not a Christian because, because of America. I'm a Christian because God has redeemed me. And I have brothers and sisters who are in the same family with me who are in Iraq. Syria, and Afghanistan, and Pakistan, and China, and Russia. So it's not about our ethnicity or nationality, and it's not about our family relationships. You're not a Christian because you're grandma, right? This is one of those things I believed when I was a kid, right? My, my grandma led me to the front of the church when I was five years old and had me pray some prayer I can't even remember. 
And then all of a sudden, everybody's like excited because I got saved. And I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about, right? But I thought I was a Christian because grandma said we were Christians. We're not Christians because of our nationality or ethnicity or family relationships. And we're not Christians. We're not part of the family of God because of our religious activities. This is the trap that a lot of people fall into. Well, I go to church. Well, that doesn't mean anything. Now, you should go to church. You should be part of God's family. You should come and worship Him. You should read your Bible. You should pray. You should give. You should serve. Those are all important things. But that's not the basis for your relationship with God. That's the overflow and the outworking. And it's not about our works. Again, it's not about what you do for God. You cannot earn God's favor. You cannot do enough to overcome the stain of your sin. Right? Again, that's why when I hear people say, well, I'm a good person. <laughs> Compared to who? Right? Compared to Hitler, probably. Right? What about Billy Graham? Probably not. If that's the standard, you're in trouble. What about Jesus? We're all in trouble. Being a child of God, being one of Abraham's offspring, being part of true Israel is not about anything else in us. It is about God and His grace. His overwhelming, unmerited, unfathomable grace. It's about His promise. And it's about His divine call and election. That's why we say that salvation is 100% the work of God. It's all Him all the time. That's why, why God's Word has never failed. God's family is made up of those whom He has chosen and elected by His own will for His own purpose. Now, I want you to hear me on this, okay? Because people will say some weird things when you, when you, when you talk about this, and they'll say, well, 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 that means you're just a bunch of robots. No, it doesn't, right? Because we still have to have faith. We still must believe, you understand me, right? God's sovereignty and salvation does not destroy your free will, as many people will say that it does. In fact, the confession of faith, the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith says, the decree does not violate the will of the creature or take away the free working or contingency of second causes. Further, it says, when God converts sinners and transforms them into the grace, the state of grace, He frees them from their natural bondage to sin and by His grace alone enables them to will and to freely do what is spiritually good. So salvation is the work of God who is sovereign and He chooses us to be part of His family. But we still, you still got to believe. You still have to exercise faith. You must still hear the gospel. You must respond in faith. Otherwise, by the way, you can't be saved. You understand that? If you don't believe, you're not saved. It's as simple as that. If you do believe, then you're part of God's family. How do I make sure that I'm part one of, how do I know I'm one of God's elect? Do you believe? Well, yeah. There you go. That's the answer. Well, do you believe? Well, no. Well, then you're not. Simple as that. But believe, and then you're saved, right? You see, the truth of God's divine election doesn't change the fact that we believe and follow Christ. It doesn't take away the responsibility and the obligations that we have to believe. What it does is that it gives us, it gives veracity and power to the gospel. The gospel is true, and it is the power of God to save all of those who believe, as Paul has promised. 
The gospel actually saves because God's word has never failed. And it gives us absolute hope that we are safe in God's hands because we know He is the author and the perfecter of our faith. And it helps us to recognize that we are saved, not because of anything within us, but rather God's own grace. And this knowledge ought for me and for the rest of us, it ought to remove arrogance. And it should drive us to our knees in humility and bring us to a place of true worship because we understand that salvation and, and our inclusion into God's family didn't come from us that it was just the pure grace of God. The God who loved us. I'm going to tell you again and again, this is, and I'll say this until I die. I don't struggle with the doctrine of the Trinity. I know it's a mystery. I can't fully explain it because no one can. I don't struggle with the doctrine of the incarnation. How can Jesus be fully God, fully man? I can't tell you the truth. I can't tell you exactly how that works, right? I just know that's what the Bible says, right? But I don't struggle with that truth. You know what struggle, I, I, the, the truth I struggle with? Why would God choose me? Why would God rescue a jerk like me? Why would God condescend and send his son to the cross to bleed and to suffer for someone who is as selfish as I have been in my life? For someone who has hurt so many people that I have hurt in my life? For someone who has still got a, got a big jerk lingering in there somewhere that likes to pop out once in a while? Why would God do that for me? And I'm going to tell you, there are times in my life now that still things pop out of me and going, Lord, do I even have a relationship with you? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I do. It's not because of me. It's certainly not because of me. It's because of what you did. That's what this doctrine does for us, is it, it helps us to see that it is all God all the time so we can worship him in spirit and in truth. And that's why we can agree with Paul who says, the only thing I can boast in is Christ. So what do we do with this then? Well, the answer is simple. If you're not in Christ and you have not come and put your faith in Christ, today's the day of salvation. He is calling all people to believe. Repent and believe the gospel and you'll be saved. Call upon the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. If you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is the promise and an indisputable, irrefutable, unchangeable promise of God. Believe and be saved. I'm calling you today. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus lived a perfect righteous life that you couldn't live to earn a righteousness that you could never earn. And then he died in your place, making atonement for your sins by his own blood. And the promise is those who trust in Him and who hold on to Him by faith are saved. They are justified. The Holy Spirit comes to live inside you to change you from the inside out, making you a different person. And then finally, that you will be glorified, that you have a hope that will never be taken from you. That's the promise if you repent and believe the gospel. Now, for those who are in Christ, I will say the same thing. Rest in your salvation. He who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. Right? Your job isn't to suddenly try to, to make God love you, you know, because you're really, really trying to be a good person. You stay saved the same way you got saved, by holding on to Jesus and resting in Him and Him alone. Right? Yes, God will change you from the inside out, and he will, he, will, he will help you to hate the sins you once loved, and He will change you little by little as a byproduct of your salvation. Right? But that's not what saves you. So rest in that. And then secondly, then, the third, I mean, if you're in Christ, defend the truth. 
Don't be afraid. Right? When somebody says, oh, you're just, you're stupid for believing that there could be a God, don't be afraid to give an answer. And guess what? You don't have to have all the answers. Just be confident in the fact that those answers have already been given and you can find them. Right? And then the other thing is stand on the Word of God. You're not in Christ because, because archaeology proves something. You're in Christ because God's Word is true. So stand on that and make that the center of your hope. And then finally, let us all go out into this world and share the only hope that there is to have, and that is Jesus Christ and Him alone. The people out there in the world don't need more money. I mean, we could all probably use a little more, right? But it's not about needing more money, right? The people out there don't need to be more popular. They don't need more friends, right? I mean, there are, are real needs that they have, but the real need that they have more than anything else is they need to be saved. They need to be rescued from their sin. Let us be the instrument that goes out and does that. Let me pray for you. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.